Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another fantastic off-season episodes. I love the off-season. There's no basketball. We can talk about whatever we want, whenever we want. And today, in that spirit, another new guest on the program, but someone who has written books not just one book, multiple books, which he'll tell us about in a second, in a space that is near and dear to my heart and related to many things we've talked about in prior episodes on this show from the Playmaker's Advantage and 80% mental consulting. Am I getting that right off the top of my head? Dan Peterson. Hey, Ben, how's it going? Yeah, uh, that sounds great. And that's really just a... Uh, a shadow front that I put up there for an email address, but uh, but yeah, that's the name of the, the name of the first book, and then uh, the second book coming out uh, last year. So um, tell people really quickly, sort of about your background, and you know, we were talking right before recording. You have the first book, and then that kind of evolved into a second book, and we'll use that to seed our conversation today about skills and athleticism and neurological development and all the fun stuff that you know we want to get into. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. So first of all, I have to start making all of my disclaimers and apologies to your audience because I know your audience uh, knows basketball very well. I know you know basketball very well. You obviously have a background in cognitive science. Uh, I have none of those. I have no PhD. Uh, I have a fan's interest in basketball, but not to the depth that that you go. Um I enjoy all sports. Uh, my wife and I raised three sons. They're all grown, but they played every sport you can imagine. So I am a sports dad. That's my claim to fame. Uh, my day job, I am involved in the neuroscience world. I'm a project manager for a neuroscience technology company. Um, and we're involved in clinical trials for neurodegenerative diseases, et cetera. So I do involve the brain in my in my daytime job. Um, but Watching my boys grow up when they were younger, and I'd go out and, you know, everything from coaching the little U8 soccer team or the basketball team, and I know a lot of your audience may relate to that, being sports dads, sports moms, and you you put these kids out in practice, you watch them run around, and you always get kind of that, that bell curve of kids where... You know, there's a few out there just, you know, picking their nose. They don't really want to be there. There's a few that are just amazing. And then most of them fall somewhere in the middle. And that always fascinated me with my boys, three boys. They were all different out on the field or the court or the ice as far as their abilities, how soon they developed. And I always thought it was fascinating watching them. And then you see those those 10% kids that they just get it. It just you know, and the and the term that that I came that everyone talks about is the playmaker. It, it goes across any sport. Um, it's that one player who just seems to be in the middle of it all, who sees the field, the court better than anyone else, sees passes, uh, is quicker to react, etc. And I always was wondering, what is that? It, it's obviously cognitive because a lot of kids have the skills, but maybe they don't have the quickness of thought and their decision-making ability. Working through some of these sports tech companies, I met a gentleman, Dr. Leonard Zykowski. For 37 years, he was a professor of performance psychology at Boston University. And I had met him through some of these sports tech companies that I was working with. Super nice guy, recently retired to Florida. And I called him up and I said, hey, Len, are you tired of playing golf yet? Would you like to write a book? And he thought about it for just a few minutes, and he goes, yes, actually, I would. He goes, I've written textbooks, I've written articles, but I would really like to write a book for the masses. And so I uh, went back to my agent, said, found someone, and she said, great, sold the book to Simon & Schuster. And uh, so 2018, The Playmaker's Advantage came out, and uh, that was the just kind of an overview of that. So. I'll stop the story there and see if you have any questions so far. So the playmaker's advantage, I mean, I think the thing that you mentioned about playmaking cutting across sports is really fascinating because one thing you don't know about me, a lot of my sort of firsthand research in tracking and generating unique metrics in basketball itself came in the playmaking realm. It came from the idea that 
the assist in basketball is simply a proxy for playmaking, but it's not one that's always accurate. It depends on who the player is, what his team is, sometimes what the era is, and what we really probably care more about than the sort of uh, almost superficial measurement of who passed the ball to the score last is how much how much of an opportunity how much of an advantage are you creating for your teammates how much are you making life easier for them certainly the spatial relationship in basketball connects to soccer very well Um, those are conversations that i've had with other guests on this podcast um, and even basketball players have talked about training and soccer and sort of the idea of you know in basketball we do a lot of two-on-two work or pairs but in soccer you can work in threes and you can work in fours and the geometry the patterns that you see with those um, sort of multiple pieces moving on the chessboard at once change the way how you think about interacting with your teammates so the 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 common thread there for me, this idea of the playmaker across sports, is I think the thing that draws me in from a basketball perspective where if you're playmaking, if you're passing, if you're setting up teammates in a way that's advantageous, this is a heavily sort of visual processing, real-time mapping, cognitive task, right? Um and that's a that's a false dichotomy anyway, in a sense, because your your whole nervous system connects back to your brain, right? In a way, it's kind of all cognitive, but it's cognitive in the sense that we think of it outside the realm of running, jumping, explosive movements, agility, all these kinds of things. So I think that's that's the connection and the interest from a basketball perspective. Um, and then, of course. You this based on the success of the first book, you took it further, right? There's the the sequel kind of extends those ideas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It it was, um, you know, the first book was really in our audience, our intended audience was parents and coaches. I mean, maybe at the college and pro level, but let's face it, those those are the you know upper one percenters, half one percenters. Um, but we did get some interest from that area too. But mostly, it was the developing athlete, preteen, teen, the coaches, the parents. Um, And one of the goals was we wanted to just start this vocabulary out there with, um, you know, talking about the cognitive side of learning sports and really saying there's so much focus on the physical end, on the physical skills, on the physical fitness, the physiology of it, um, that we really wanted to say, you know, there's this whole cognitive realm and not specifically, you know, the traditional sports psychology motivation and all of that stuff, which is important, but that's not where we wanted to go with it. We wanted to go with the thinking side of sports, just like you described, the um, the reaction time, the perception, the uh, opportunities to see opportunities out there, to react in time, the cognitive processing, all of that. So the first book, we had this, you know, um, kind of see, decide, act, you know, the perception, we divided the book into three parts, the perception, being able to see things out there visually, you know, auditory, etc. But then also then taking in all that input that they get from the court, the field, etc. And then making a decision. And there's a whole science of that that we went into in the second book. And then, of course, acting, you know, the skills themselves. And and they all kind of flow together, and we talk about this perception action or this uh, this loop that constantly, when you're out in the court, players go through constantly of see, decide, act, see, decide, act. And every single time, it's a little bit different, like you said. Players are in a slightly different position. The motivation of what we have to do right now is different, offense, defense, etc. So they're constantly running this loop in their head and and making decisions on the court. So anyway, we got the book came out in 2018, uh, got a good reception, got a lot of uh, interest from parents and coaches. But the one question that kept coming kept coming back to us from that was, okay, it's the decision making. You kind of we we spent like two chapters in the first book on it, but the coaches all said that's the black box we're trying to unlock. You know that you can't just say, and it goes into this black box, they make a decision and then it comes out the other end. Could you dive deeper into the decision-making part of that? We get the perception stuff, we get the skill development acquisition stuff, but it's the actual moment of decision, pass, shoot, move, do whatever. 
how is that done in the brain? When is it done in the brain? How can we train that and make it better? Um, how do we measure that? We talked about all the analytics that you've done and that, you know, are kind of the rage right now across all sports to do analytics. But then how do we apply those analytics to the actual learning process of players? You can show them all the analytics in the world and explain it to them. But if that brain function doesn't work or doesn't improve, then they haven't made better decisions. So we went back updated a lot of the research, looked at a lot of the new research, went in specifically on decision-making, um, and we just kind of created this this model of uh, decision-making model of what we thought were the real influences uh, to that moment of decision uh, out on the court, on the ice, et cetera. And we divided it into two major parts, uh, traits and constraints, and we'll go into that in a little bit. But... Um, and then we put that that book came out in November of 2020, the Playmakers' Decisions, and um, I think it we just wanted to continue the discussion we started with a lot of the coaches and and players and parents to say, here's more information, going a little bit deeper into that. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So so let's get a little nerdier. Let's let's dive in. <laughs> enough, enough foreplay for the audience. Um, so... One thing that, especially in basketball, comes up a lot is this term skill. And I've said many times before, often there's a group of people, there's a a type of fan or analyst or player, when they hear skill in basketball, they think dribbling, they think shooting, um, maybe even shooting under duress or in difficult circumstances or a wide variety of circumstances. And that's largely the extent of it. You know, maybe behind the back passes fall under the umbrella of skill, but really they're, they're referring to ball skills, this reductionism of this idea of skill. Um, right. But obviously, obviously, I think it's significantly more complex and robust than that. And I think that's something that you actually get into um, in the book, right? At least in the original book. Why don't you kind of elaborate on what you mean by skill? Um, do you guys define it more formally? How, how, how should we think about this uh, in the context of this conversation? Yeah, and I think there's two popular concepts that are out there that a lot of parents and coaches and fans have heard of. One is um, the 10,000 hours of skill acquisition. And just a quick background on that. So there was a professor, uh, unfortunately just passed away, um, Kay Anders Erickson, who was at Florida State University for years and years, um, a colleague of, of Lens. And he did a lot of research on skill acquisition. And back in the 80s, he did research on musicians, actually, and some of these uh, seminal papers that came out uh, that were later <laughs> made popular, but uh, they were on musicians and, for example, how kids learn to play the violin, etc. And what he did was study the, kind of the life stories, life reports of these virtuoso children musicians to say, how did they get to this point? How did they get so good? And I'm paraphrasing a lot here. I know you know the details of those studies, but basically came to the conclusion that there were a certain number of hours on average that these um, these virtuoso students practiced. Um, his point, as far as I took it away, was more related to a concept that he developed called deliberate practice. So he said, if you want to be good at something, you can just you can go out in the driveway and just shoot random buckets at your you know your driveway hoop mounted on the garage. You can just do that for hours and you'll get a little bit better. But if you took those hours and you actually made a deliberate plan, which included several different points, which I won't get into, but but basically said, okay, what is my weakest shot? My weakest shot is this. So I'm going to spend a lot of time on that. I'm going to have a coach nearby 
who can tell me what I'm doing wrong and give me specific pointers on how to make that shot better. And then I'm going to practice it for hours until I can do it much, much better than I can. So it wasn't just random shooting buckets. It was deliberate practice on deliberate skills that they're trying to attain. Um, Malcolm Gladwell (laughs) uh, took that research and plucked it out of obscurity and made it famous uh, in his book. um, Which book was it? Outliers, right? Outliers, yes. Thank you. And and he globbed on to the number aspect of it a little bit. He did talk about deliberate practice, but he kind of made he came up with the phrase ten thousand hours and made it famous because Outliers was a bestseller. And that message kind of got garbled, and it kind of uh, you know when it got out there, it it filtered to parents and coaches, etc. That not so much the deliberate practice part of it. But the 10,000 hours stuck in everyone's head. And so everyone started like this this clock on their kids of, <laughs> well, Junior's got three years times X number of hours. I think we're about 3,000 hours in. So he should be in the NBA yeah, in about yeah. four years. Four years <laughs> for the NBA. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that became almost an obsession. And, and it just got talked about too much. And, you know, for the first book, we, we had the opportunity to interview Dr. Erickson. And he said to us in, in the quotes in the book, but he said, basically, yeah, I go to a lot of practices. I go, and he goes, I, I never really was, I meant to get into sports that much. I was studying other skill acquisition, but I got kind of dragged into it. And he'd go, I'd go watch teams. I'd go watch professional teams, college teams, et cetera. And, and his quote was, you know, very little of what I see at those practices is what I would call deliberate practice, where there's an individual training plan for every player out there uh, that every player is different, not only different from other players, but different day to day, week mm. to week. They have different development patterns, dif- development timelines. And so you have to come up with a training plan that um, is different for every player. Um, I'm just pulling up a uh, one of the quotes in the book we put in there was um, – John Wooden's stuff at UCLA and out of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's book. I was I was looking at a, a section he had in that book about practices, and I, I got it here. So his this is Kareem talking about UCLA practices with Wooden. And he said, practices were highly structured, scheduled to the minute, to the second, to the nanosecond. We knew that he spent two hours every morning just working out the schedule for that day's two-hour practice. He wrote everything down on three-by-five index cards and kept a loose-leaf notebook with detailed notes of every practice session. Most other coaches would simply have pulled out their familiar list of drills that they used every year with every team. But coaches' philosophy was that teams were much more fluid uh, other coaches saw their teams as a deck of cards. If one card dropped off, they just grabbed another card from the deck. Coach Wooden looked at the face value of every card. No two cards were alike, just as no two players were alike. Even more interesting, he realized that our particular player was not the same player one day that he had the day before, that each time one player progressed, etc. cetera. Uh, after we did our drills, we scrimmaged during a game. What often appeared to be spontaneous on the court was actually the result of hours of practicing until our responses finally became spontaneous and instantaneous. Mm. So, and that really gets. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that that terminology of spontaneous, um, and maybe maybe I was cutting you off as you were going to say it. It everything about the deliberate practice research to me. Um, the head of my master's program used to say, you want to get everything on the automation superhighway. So your your brain kind of starts to move everything through this this uh, shortcutted pathway. You don't have to think out there anymore. It's what we think of as intuition, right? And when you can transfer into that section, um, then then you actually have, for lack of a better word, you have uh, expertise in that actual decision-making loop in in a um, in kind of neurological groove if you're talking about a golf swing or a jump shot like you're not thinking about it anymore you've done it enough where it's proficient and you can do it automatically the um, the other wooden quote I was thinking of which is sort of related to this idea of what you're practicing and how you're doing it and how it makes a difference is something along the lines of don't don't mistake activity for achievement like you can just you can do a lot of stuff but it's not necessarily the stuff you want to be doing exactly and and in both books, yeah, we talked, just like you said, about the automaticity uh, and Daniel Kahneman's System 1 versus System 2, thinking fast and slow. 
great book that applies so much to sports and any skill acquisition. So like you were saying at the beginning, when we talk about just basic skill acquisition, let's say a young basketball player dribbling a basketball, you know, step one, um, just getting to the point of, you know, if you imagine a four-year-old, probably a three or two-year-old now, but a four-year-old kid trying to dribble a basketball, his all of his attention, all of his <laughs> cognitive powers are focused on watching that basketball go up to his hand, down to the ground, up to his hand, down to the ground, and just trying to get it consistently so it doesn't dribble off his foot, etc. And there's so much cognitive cycle spent just on getting that bounce right and and managing that. And then there's going to the other hand. And so what Kahneman talks about, and, and Kahneman is the Israeli uh, psychologist who uh, worked a number of years with Amos Tversky on developing all kinds of theories about our biases, etc. But what he talked about in Thinking Fast and Slow is he divided this process into system one and system two. And system one, basically, you know, you say two times two, it's four. Well, you didn't have to think about it because it, your brain automatically finished the sentence for you. Or something gets thrown at your head and you duck. Well, you didn't have to think about it. Uh, it was a reaction. You just ducked. So all of those things where you're not consciously stopping to think about it, that it's a learned activity and you know how to do it. It's like driving eventually. If at first, when you're learning to drive, you know, two hands on the wheel, you're totally focused, um, you're staring everything down to the point now where we do just about anything in the car while we drive, and it, you're just on autopilot, and you just, you notice things, hopefully. Well, you can um, you can drive places and then arrive and go, how did I get here? Exactly. <laughs> I don't remember anything yeah. about that. You can basically... Or you're, or you're I, driving and, and listening to a, a thinking basketball podcast and going, wow. That's um, dangerous. I don't recommend that. <laughs> I am not responsible for anything that happens in the car <laughs> while listening to one of these podcasts. Um <laughs> Let me connect that to something that I think we'll probably come back to more than once. The see, decide, and then act. That that three-part dance. See the court, right. see the field, make a decision, and then act. So much of what I'm hearing is um, our focus or thought on skill is the act part. So I'm a four-year-old. I'm learning to dribble. I need to have dexterity. I need to have proprioception. I need to have basically an understanding of how I can move the ball around with my hands to the point where I don't have to think about it. But that's kind of only the, or primarily the action part of that three-step loop, right? That I think so many people focus on that when we think of skill, but the see things and the decide things to me are also hugely important. And in, in a sport like basketball, they're like, you know, in a way they're like 98% of the game, because if you have all the ability to do the actions, but you can't do, you can't process what's happening around you and you can't make the right decisions, even the most talented players in the world um, aren't going to succeed at the highest levels. Yeah. And I think that's the, you know, that's the development process is the whole goal of, you know, learning how to dribble is that eventually that becomes an automatic process where it's just the feel of it at your hand. It's an, a subconscious thing that you know you're dribbling a basketball, but you don't have to focus on that anymore. So now, as coaches will say, you know, lift your head up and look around the court and see what's up there. And I don't have to be thinking about dribbling this basketball. It's just, you know, second nature. And that's, that's where we have to get to. It's the system two that Kahneman talks about. That's the, you know, I have to think about it process. That's the, what's 24 times 52? Well, hold, give me a second. I can do that in my head, but I'm going to need a minute. Um, and you have to think about it and, and you have to work on that to come up with the answer, but you can do it. Um, the goal with sports acquisition or sports skill acquisition is to get from system two to system one with so many different things. And that's kind of the the process that we get through is, you know, go from learning to dribble or any other advanced skill, you know, uh, sometimes shooting can be, a you know, a, an automatic thing where I'm not thinking about it. They talk about golf swings or anything like that, where as soon as you start thinking about your swing, as soon as you start thinking about your shot, that's when you're screwing up because all of those repetitions, those thousands and thousands of 
deliberate practice shots that you've taken, that's developed a groove in your brain of, you know, the, the term out there is muscle memory. I'm not a big fan of that term. But the idea is that your brain is starting to learn all of the different kinematic things that have to go right. And when you let a shot go and as it leaves your hand, you know it's going in, that's your brain saying, yep, we did everything right, uh, went down the checklist and everything worked. And it's a kind of a subconscious thing that you know that ball's going in when it leaves your hand because everything worked. And then we have, then we can go to the next level when we get some of those skills there of lift up your head, look for your teammates, and then we get into all of the other uh, perception and awareness of where are the defenders, where are my teammates, what are the tactics, and that's that's kind of the things we got into in the second book of, okay, now let's go into in, inside of that decision-making part and understand, you know, what are the things that are influencing this decision? Yeah, there's um, there's an idea in the book that you discuss about the first choice strategy, I think. Is that right? First choice strategy versus a visual scan strategy. Am I remembering? Interrupt me if I'm butchering this idea. <laughs> no, no, no. That, that's great. And I, I, I think a lot of the research that's been done, not only in sports, uh, but one of the gentlemen we met during the process, uh, a little bit in the first book, but more in the second book, um, was Dr. Gary Klein, and who's never... Uh, been affiliated with the university, never went the academic route, but he has spent his whole 40-year career studying decision-making, not necessarily in sports, but in situations and environments that are uh, where you have to decide under pressure. And so one of the things he will contend is, you know, and he had kind of this, not a feud going on with Kahneman and Tversky, but just kind of a debate, because in Kahneman and Tversky's world, they would study more traditional decision-making, so maybe consumer behavior or things like that. And what Klein studied was he would study um, first responders, police, military, um, areas where you had to make a decision in a hurry, uh, you had a time constraint, and the stakes were high. And so in other words, there was this pressure to make this decision. He's like, yes, there's a different set of decision rules when you're you know, buying a new car or something. You know, you do all your research, you weigh, weigh different options, et cetera, and you have the time to consider it. But when you're entering a burning building and you have to decide quickly, you know, which way to go, is the floor about to give out underneath me? All of these things that are more subconscious, kind of that, that system one of Kahneman, that's what he um, uh, studied. And so when he looked at that, and he interviewed these military um, uh, fighters or he would um, interview fire chiefs who have all this experience. He came up with a term to satisfice um, that it would, uh, it would be a term that they – um, thinking, thinking basketball th- readers will be familiar with it. I just, I discuss it in the, at the outset of that book. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. About the uh, Klein research. Yes. Just the concept of satisficing coming out of that specifically oh, good. where, where you are. So when I screw up this description, you can help me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, it's the idea of, I don't think you're screwing it up. It's just the idea of uh, sort of satisfactory. It, you're trying to optimize versus being perfect. You know, perfect is the enemy of the good in that situation. And so the heuristic, the the thing that we have to do that's wired into us is we have to make a choice that satisfies enough of what we need to do, um, knowing that we're not going to be perfect, knowing that we're not going to sit there and read every consumer report review about the new car we're buying. Um, and of course, that maps into you come out of a timeout, you see a new junk defense, there's eight seconds on the shot clock. What are you going to do? This takes us back into that. If we go to that three steps, see, decide, act, right? This is firmly in those first two areas, and we have to act very quickly uh, and under those uh, constraints and that pressure. Yeah, and I think the, like you said, the first choice theory, um, there was some sports research on that as far as when they interview, you know, the different options that are available, that most of the time, the first choice that an experienced uh, player will come up with is the best. So there's the take the first uh, rule or heuristic that for experienced veteran players um, or people in those other environments, 
that usually their best, their first choice was the best one and they should take it. In other words, in that time-constrained world, they don't have time to work through and simulate in their brains, well, I could pass it here, I could shoot it here, I could dribble, uh, let me work through those. No, you have a half a second before the defender's on you, so you need to decide. And that's part of the automaticity part, is I've been through this scenario so many times that I can instantly um, understand what I have to do. We have a one of the chapters in the new book, uh, we focus on uh, one of what we call the traits, and that's cognition and kind of the information processing skill of each individual. And that's sort of something you're born with as a trait. It can be developed a little bit, but we have a story about <laughs> our favorite, LeBron James, um, about his so-called photographic memory and how that may help him. Um, it's got a little bit here about like Jason Kidd on LeBron James saying, uh, I think it entails understanding time and score, understanding your opponent, understanding your teammates and understanding yourself. Um, and when he, as an assistant coach with the Lakers, he saw LeBron and he said, it's kind of like a movie, but playing it fast forward. I think he, LeBron, plays the game that way in the same sense of anticipating what's next. And when you have a high basketball IQ, you understand what's going on. Uh, it's going to help him play until he's 40. His IQ is always going to help him because he's going to be able to take less steps. Instead of running a six-mile race, he can run a five-mile race just because of his IQ. You're not going to cheat him playing cards. <laughs> just know he's paying attention. Um, and then there's other stories that others have told about, you know, not just basketball, but LeBron will walk into a room. They're, they have a game on from the 97 finals, and he'll explain exactly Oh, that's the play where so and so scored this many points and they won the game and that, you know, and and it's football and other things like that and they just can't understand where he comes up with that stuff. And then LeBron himself a quote, I, I can't remember I have it footnoted in the book, but he said if I see the defense is shifting over and they're bringing two defenders to the ball, then I know I have a numbers game on the weak side and it's 4 on 3. I've been in those positions so many times throughout my career, I can literally close my eyes and know where my guys are going to be at and be able to read and react to that. Yeah. And that's, you know, one of the greatest players ever. Obviously, he has not only the physical skills, but the cognitive skills and that that knowledge base of all of those thousands and thousands of patterns. And that's that's what Klein gets into. That's what others get into is really you're building this knowledge base of patterns and as you're a developing player, you've only seen a few patterns, a few hundred patterns, a few thousand patterns. When you've played the game 10, 12, 20 years, you've seen thousands and thousands more patterns. And your brain can start to deduce from those patterns what you should do in this new, unique uh, situation that you're in. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to say, I've never seen this before. You, you just react to it. Yeah, and I think that's a great example with the, with the double team or a, a second defender where you are automating, you know, in chess research, the popular term that came out of this was chunking, right? Um, the, right. the experts would group the boards together in a certain way. Um, and I think this applies across a lot of cognitive processing dimensions. I mean, for instance, if you're a poker player, um, you know, the ability to remember hands from five years ago isn't because you're worried about where the cards are on the table, the color of the deck. It's all the salient variables that are new in that situation where everything else in that hand is grouped together based on all these patterns, the patterns of what happened on the flop before the flop came out, um, you know, what type of player you were in the hand with or two other types of players. I think it's the same thing with chess and experts seeing board sort of positions and patterns. And I think it's the same thing in basketball where um, it can be overwhelming to have nine other guys on the court, but there's still a simplification for someone like LeBron, for some of these great playmakers, sort of um, tip of the spear attackers, if you will, in these offenses. They've seen it all. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to do's, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, I think something you guys get into in the book as well, which which fascinates me, is the sort of idea of learning adaptability. And there's this whole other world of how do how do you train this stuff? How do you how do you help someone get better in the processing dimension and in the decision dimension before they then actually make the pass um, or shoot? Oscar Robertson famously said, you know, the single hardest thing in basketball is deciding when to shoot or when to pass. Um, And it's like it's highly reductionist. And yet it's like 90 percent of the sport for for most people out there all the way up to the highest levels where, you know, if you have this skill, all the ball skills and everything else we talked about, um, when do you act? And so if you practice under these rote settings, earlier you alluded to coaches pulling out another card from their deck of cards, um, what does that do when you encounter a novel setting as a player versus trying to teach players to recognize patterns and decisions so everything becomes more automatic, right? So everything is simplified in the moment and they are using that high-speed processing. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's in the development stage, in their teen years, et cetera, even younger, that's the <laughs> the biggest thing that we saw going on in youth sports. I saw it when, when our boys were growing up. We hear stories about it. And not necessarily the negative, plenty of that, the negative things from parents and coaches, but the, as we call them, the remote control coaches, you know, that are up and down the sideline yelling out exactly what to do every second of the play. You pass it here, pass it there, shoot, don't do that, don't do this. And and I think what some of the professional college coaches, et cetera, will argue or, or try to get the younger coaches to set to do is coach them up in practice, you know, go through the things, go through the schemes, go through the ideas. But then when it's game time, let them play. And OK, during a timeout, during halftime, whatever, you can make some corrections and adjustments. But when they're out there playing, especially at a younger age, let them make the decisions and more importantly, let them make the mistakes and learn from that. And I think a lot of parents and coaches, and I was like that when I was, our guys were growing up, you don't want the kids to make mistakes. So you're yelling stuff out, hoping that, you know, that somehow, you know, better than they do. And that at least if they do what you tell them to, it's your mistake, not theirs. But I, it really stunts their development because as they're processing as they're taking in all of this visual and auditory information and and who's near me and what what choices do I have and then if on one side of the court they've got a coach you know yelling exactly who they should pass to even if they don't see that pass available and they've got a parent on the other side telling them to shoot it's just disrupting this whole loop that's going on in their heads and they don't know what to do and the learning process gets gets stunted because they didn't have the opportunity to actually say, uh, to build that pattern and go, when I see this next time, I'll realize not to do that because last time I did that, it didn't go so well. And so I think that's one of the things that, that, um, come back to, I go back to, um, Kareem had some comments on that. He, He said, when he was talking about wooden, he said, we didn't have any set plays. We had a basic offensive system you go here, you go there, you go in that corner, stand over there, and then we would run several options off of it, depending on how our opponents defended us. Our offense was structured to recognize opportunities as a group and take advantage of them. Um, I also talk about, um, you know, some of the other great coaches out there. Um, and, and, I, and I think what we're ahead. really describing as, as you uh, pull up that next quote is yep. just – the success of read and react, um, certainly in basketball and in other sports where you create optionality based on what you see. So you have the ability to 
practice in basketball, it may be a handful of counters or counter to a counter, or you get to see, you know, you have an idea of what your guys are going to do and when, but you get to kind of read and react based on what the defense does. And the, and the success of this kind of um, sort of play style across sports and in the modern game, moving, cutting, screening, passing, and how powerful it is, I think is, is we've seen it's uh, come to fruition. It's sort of the the proof is in the pudding. But of course, what's interesting and what you guys are getting into in all the research that's out there and in both of these books is how do you develop that, right? I think mm-hmm. I think that's a question that not not only coaches are interested in, but fans when they look at young players or prospects or just the entire sort of cottage industry in basketball around um, the draft and and young players and growth and development. How can you make that? Um, in other words, can I take someone who at 18 doesn't show a lot of really quick read and react kind of fluid, dynamic decision making attributes like that? And can I ramp them up? Can I move them up the bell curve? Like what what is sort of the um, practice and the promise for focusing on these types of uh, training practices and developmental practices that aren't just rote cookie cutter, do this drill over and over and over again. Yeah. And I think that's, um, I, I hear a lot of coaches talk about, you know, in their, and this is back to the developing player again, but what percentage of your practices are your players out there playing, making decisions? So in other words, it's not just this rote, um, We're going to run this drill over and over and over, which builds some skill acquisition and does some, you know, build some automaticity. But how much, what percentage of your practice are they making active decisions without you blowing the whistle and stopping every time they do something wrong? So in other words, you give them those opportunities to see all those patterns. Um, There's a lot of uh, research done about young kids, developing kids, preteens, teen years, playing multiple sports. And a mm, lot of the yeah. complementary, yeah, the complementary skills between a soccer and a basketball and a hockey, you know, uh, attack-minded uh, sports. If they play those similar sports, the perception, the decision making, the tactics, etc., are similar, not exactly the same. But by giving you the brain different experiences in slightly different sports, but then the brain eventually will be able to generalize, like. Okay, if I'm the, um, you know, if I'm bringing the puck up the ice, it's kind of like me bringing, you know, point guard bringing the basketball up, me being a midfielder bringing the soccer ball up. Different skills involved, but the ideas are the same and reading defenses, etc. And you know, you prevent the other things. You prevent, you know, youth sports burnouts if they're playing multiple sports. But yet their brains are collecting all of those different patterns, collecting all of those different experiences. And one sport will cross over and help another sport. And there's been studies done on that. Um, you know, it's one of the things we, we Len and I talked about with, with the second book, too, is exactly what you said. Okay, that's all great information. We can read all the articles. But what is the process of measuring and improving decision making? Right. And it really is a, a, a tough answer because, like you said, skill development, okay, either you can dribble or you can't. Either you shoot or you can't. Um, you can get better at that. You can see tangible results, you know, free throw percentage, whatever it is. Decision-making is a tough thing to nail down because you're, just as you were saying at the opening, okay, I've got a string of passes, and it's a little more in soccer than in basketball, but a string of three, four, five, six passes that led to a goal, that led to a basket. Um, We credit the last one right before the goal, (laughs) Uh, or maybe in hockey, the last two passes. You got to get that second. Assist. Yeah, you got to get that second guy in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but really, it was like okay, way way upfield when that midfielder made that crossing pass to, to the outside there. That was that three passes later ended up in a goal. Well, okay, we can go back in the film and go, yeah, that was a really a key pass there. Great decision. But then. The tough part is if we say if he tries to make that pass and it's not quite um, uh, executed properly and maybe it's a you know couple yards off and the defender intercepts it, et cetera, whatever. Okay, 
we label that as a poor decision mm-hmm. yeah. or an incom- incomplete pass. Turnover uh, or whatever. At, yeah. yeah, we look at a football, yeah, turnover. But it's like, but decision-wise, they always love saying this in soccer. Oh, good idea, good idea. Um, decision-wise, it was a good decision. It just wasn't executed very well. But yet in the stat sheet, it's like, mm, I don't know, that how do we record that and how do we say – you know, that player took a step up by making that pass. That was a good decision. And how do we add those up? And I, for the one chapter we have in the second book, we call it improving decision or measuring decisions. And we go into some of the research about how are sports and teams and analytics folks starting to measure decisions. And we tried to find like the decision making metric. <laughs> you know, if there was one or if there, someone had said, I put this this one, this one, and this one together and call it the decision-making package. It, it's tough to find. You can do pass completion rate. You can do, in soccer, they do a lot of, you know, uh, short versus medium versus long passes, uh, passes that, you know, lead to a goal or the network. There's a lot of work going on. You know, Kirk Goldsberry does all of his stuff about, you know, exactly time and space. There's some very interesting stuff uh, that I've been fascinating with. Um, oh, I can't remember his name. He works at uh, Stats, and he is like their VP of AI. And now um, he's working with Carnegie Mellon. And so they did this. They were using the Sports View um, Stats package in the NBA arenas, and that one they can measure the you know the X's and Y's of, of player location and movement, etc. But even now they've got this AI-enabled technology, Open Pose. Have you heard of that? Open it's pose? Like they, no. Yeah, they got to a point where they could do X, Y, and and show you movement, and then they could actually simulate, all right, here's what actually happened, uh, and they could create that from the film. They could go to digital and say, here's a recreation of that play, um, but now they can actually say, what would the best defense in the NBA, what would they do differently in that situation? And they will simulate with AI the movement of players. So in other words, here's what you did on that play defensively. Here's what the best team and defensive team in the NBA would have done mm. defensively to the point where they can now with the cameras look at, um, because you can say, well, he made a pass here, but it was an incomplete pass. And maybe that's because he had his back turned or something and it went off his shoulder or something. Now they can actually look at, you know, from the film, were they in a, a position ready to accept the pass, et cetera. But but then they can start looking at, you know, measuring some of those decisions of what we would ultimately like to get to is have a stat that says in basketball, uh, their decision making percentage is X. And then if you're a coach, you can say, all right, your decision making um, index is this. We need to improve that. Here's the things we're going to do to improve that. And then three, four, five, half a season later, uh, games later, we can say, hey, your decision-making index went up. It went from here to here. But I don't know. What have you seen, Ben, from all of your work in analytics? Is there a decision-making package out there that could say, this is where you're at now, and this is where you need to get to? Not really in the public space. Um, I, I think maybe the closest thing that I know of is some of the work that I alluded to earlier on playmaking, where I have a a metric called passer rating for basketball, which when I was developing it originally was um, the working title was passing efficiency because I was thinking about opportunities. I was going into games and tracking these visual opportunities uh, and like how tight is the window in the opportunity? How long is it open for? And how often does the player successfully deliver the pass to the opportunity? Of course, part of the challenge is you go back to that, three-step act where the last you know you have to see and decide but you have to act and certain players they might see something but they can't act in time or they're too small or they can't get the right angle or they don't feel comfortable Um, i think a lot of this falls under the umbrella of risk taking as well and i use steve nash in in my work a lot to sort of discuss this idea because maybe you guys encountered this when you were looking at what are the what are the common stats or indexes that people use? Well, in basketball, historically, it was something like assist-to-turnover ratio. But mm-hmm. my big problem with assist-to-turnover ratio has always been it doesn't take into account the sort of risk-reward. So it, it, it greatly 
rewards conservatism. You can have guys that have massively high assist to turnover ratios, five to one, six to one, seven to one. And it's because they're very conservative. They don't ever take risks. Whereas Nash, when you watch him play, he will make extremely aggressive passes and decisions um, early on as well in transition or uh, kind of upstream in an action. You know, you run a pick and roll in basketball, guy dives down the lane and he's throwing it really, really early. And eight times out of 10, it may connect for what we'd think of as a home run or, or a touchdown, like the, the full, you get a layup out of it. You're just manufacturing mm-hmm. points in basketball. You just layups out of thin air. But the other two times, um, it's not that he didn't throw the pass or that the possession and the chain of events kind of continued and nothing was ever collected. It's that he picks up a turnover. And so mm-hmm. he just looks like he has the same assist to turnover ratio as everyone else when, in fact, his turnovers are part of a larger package of decision making with a huge net positive. At least that's the idea. And I think the the data bears that out with someone like Nash, where we are not adjusting for the reward. We're not adjusting for the cost benefit. You go back to soccer. I think it's the same idea in basketball. If you're a great table setter, if you're a great, say you're a midfielder and you have to advance that ball, you have to change sides or something. um, These are the kinds of passes that lesser players don't make. And sometimes they fizzle out. And so maybe in the stat, you're, um, you pick up a turnover or in soccer, your time of possession goes down or your completion percentage goes down or something like that. But when they do connect, the expected value on the action is so high that it's really, really um, valuable in the long run for the team. I think, I think Len, um, I don't know if you remember any of this, I think he talked about Nash himself and sort of how if you actually talk to him, his, his self-awareness of his development cycle in decision-making is kind of anomalous as where you talk to most great athletes who are really proficient in this area, and it's just all intuitive since they were younger. But with Nash, he seemed to have more of a laid-out understanding as he went from high school to college to the NBA of kind of how to improve these skills. I don't know if you can talk to that at all. I feel like um, yeah. pulling that out of a, a, an interview that I saw you guys do a long time ago. So, um, Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, and you're right, Len... Um, He's done some consulting lately with the Golden State Warriors and with Nash's uh, association with the Warriors, at least before he went to the Nets. Um, uh, Len had a chance to sit down and, and have lunch with him. But one of the things that's <laughs> interesting about Steve Nash is his legend of being so creative that um, we have it in the book. I can't remember the researcher's name, but a researcher actually did a study on Steve Nash and talked about kind of did this whole life story, structured life story about how he got to be that type of creative playmaker. And I've, I've got a couple quotes here f- at, that came out of the academic report about Steve Nash telling his story. And he was talking about my dad was a creative player. He saw the subtleties in the game. This is uh, soccer. Creativity. His dad played yeah. soccer. Yep. His dad played soccer. So when he was growing up in Canada playing soccer first, um, he talks about, so there was a value system created for me for being creative, for seeing things before they happened, for tricking people, for being cheeky or witty with your game. And he said, I just can't imagine that many kids are afforded that. Sure, there's many out there and they probably get it from the streets, but I had this person, his dad, that valued those things that a lot of other parents probably had no idea what they were. Um, And whereas a lot, he said, whereas a lot of kids might have it, had a dad that would say something like, man, you're really fast or you kick that ball really hard or great goal. My dad didn't really value those things as much as, uh, as what you perceived or what you created or how you expressed yourself. If you made a great pass, he'd be like, he'd put his arm around you after the game and be like, that was really, really great. The way you were unselfish there and passed your teammate when you could have, could have had a shot. And so to have that value system at a young age, and I think that's to the point where, you know, we, we continue the story in the book about, you know, his time with the Mavericks and Don Nelson pulling him aside and saying, if you want a future with my team or anywhere, you need to learn to shoot the ball because you're the, one of the best shooters on my team. And if you don't shoot the ball, you're not going to play. And he goes, he talks about how hard that was to, at, in, in his mind, be selfish and take shots when he could see a better pass 
until Nelly just told him, look, either you shoot or you sit on the bench with me. And so he started shooting, became one of the greatest shooters ever. And so he goes, it was a learning experience, but it started with being rewarded by his dad for being creative. I just want to point out on that story that if you go back and watch some of those games in his Dallas years, especially when he emerged in sort of 2001, 2002, um, he went from kind of a bench or fringe starter kind of player, probably for health reasons in, in retrospect, uh, but he burst onto the scene, all NBA type season. And if you watch these old games, they start talking about how aggressive he is with his pull-up three-point shooting. Boy, those Mavs, that Nash really lets it fly. He just comes down the court. <laughs> and of course, you know, not the the playmaking and unselfish perspective um, is part of that that you just alluded to with that story. But we know 20 years later in basketball that there are all these people, Nash himself has discussed this, who, you know, say, hey, we didn't utilize the three-point shot enough. And back in my day, uh, 15, 20 years ago, if I had known what we had known now, if I had the coaches and the systems we had known now, instead of taking two or three three-pointers a game, I might have taken eight or ten or something like that. Um, anyway, g continue. No, and, and so I think that's um, – it, it starts with that environment. And as far as how to, you know, um, when they get to the college or pro level, obviously they're at the elite level anyway. But starting in, you know, youth sports, starting in high school sports, et cetera, I think that environment of – you know, rather than the, the highlight generation and, and getting the shot or getting the goal, being recognized and valued as a playmaker. I think, you know, it's one of the things when we when we put this decision making model together, and again, there's tons of models out there, some more academically supported than ours. We just thought let's put together a a, a graphic, a diagram that organizes the book but also helps people kind of think about when they're looking at their son or daughter playing all of the pressure and things that are going through their head and that, you know, you don't really need to add any more to that. But that's how we divide out an actual, just as we talked about in the first book, that, that see, decide, act loop. Um, in this one, we broke it down into the decision-making influences and we have six things. Three of them are traits and the traits are kind of kind of the things you're born with, but some of the things that you can improve, but they're specific to you. And that's your attention, you know, what you pay attention to out on the court, out on the field. That's the perception part of it. Um, it's also, we put in some stuff, for example, um, attention and its opposite of that is deception. So in other words, if you're a defender and what you're paying attention to from the ball handler um, well, that's where you get the crossover dribble or that's where you get the step over in soccer moves designed to deceive and moves designed to draw your attention to one place and then go to another. And we talk about, <laughs> I don't know why, but I, I put, I was fascinated with it. So I put a section in there on magic and magicians and pen and teller and sleight of hand and, and the illusionists and I there's think it's research. very relevant. I, it just, yeah, yeah, I just, I, I there's too, research being done. I uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I too, over the years have learned more about magic for this exact reason, for um, the neurological sort of cognitive perspective, but also as it maps back onto exactly what you're talking about in sports, where your your brain is drawn to certain things, and sort of how how does that sort of guide and relate to exactly the loop you're talking about. So continue attention, deception, pen and yeah, teller. I mean, like um, the quote I see here from teller is in, and some researchers did a, a paper or two on them and talked to them about their specific skill of deception and sleight of hand. Um, there's the one um, I'm going to forget his name, Apollo Robbins, who's the uh, celebrity pickpocket and he's made a career of, you know, going on stage or going to corporate parties and and just pickpocketing people while he's talking to them. And he's and Teller's quote is action is motion with a purpose. And so he talks about everything he does, every hand movement, every gesture has a purpose. It's not just random. So if his hand or his eyes go over here. It's it's designed to get you to follow that hand so that you're not looking at what the other hand does. And it, there's been studies done on crossover dribbles, on stepovers in soccer, 
<laughs> to the point where um, I have this one in here, Daniel Bishop at Brunel, Dr. Daniel Bishop, did one with um, Bruce Abernathy, longtime uh, expert in this field, where they put uh, soccer players, novice and expert, in an fMRI scanner and scanned their brains while they watched um, soccer attackers coming at them. And they tried to predict, they asked them while their brains, brains were being scanned, to predict um, kind of a point of view film of a, a attacker coming at them with the ball by studying their hips, whatever, which way the attacker was going to go with the ball. And so they not only, you know, could judge whether they got the answer right, you know, based on what the, they continued the film, but they got to watch inside their brain while they made that decision. And the fascinating thing was they saw, you know, the whole mirror neuron system light up in the experienced players, not so much the novice or intermediate players, but they could see that experience in their brain so that the experienced players using the mirror neuron system, which is basically saying, I can make a crossover move on you and I know how to do that skill. But then also my brain can recognize that when you come at me with that, because I know what the, what it is to do that move so I can understand it. My brain can detect it. And so they were able to actually see that, yes, indeed, we've proven <laughs> that experienced players' brains are different and they know how to read those those responses. And can they tell exactly like where they're looking and how they get um, uh, fooled or how they learn not to get fooled? And there is some interesting research do it, done now with um, uh, with the, um, oh, what do we call it? The, the glasses that can look at, can study where your focus is. Um, the eye, eye tracking kind of. Yes, eye yeah, tracking. Yeah. Thank you. I couldn't think come up with a term. But basically, while you look at something coming at you, it will follow your pupils and then uh, project them and say, you know, if, if the goalie says, well, I was looking at, at the puck. No, you weren't. You were looking all over the place. Or when you're shooting a free throw, I was looking at the front of the hoop. No, you weren't. You were looking at the backboard and all over these other things. And so there you can start to train them and inform them that this is where you should be looking and paying attention. And this is where you were and you can improve on that. But anyway, going back to the diagram. So attention is one of the traits. Cognition we talked about a little bit. That's the information processing that goes inside in your brain. Working memory. There's a lot of research on working memory capacity and that uh, expanding your working memory capacity uh, pulls in a number of things that you can track at one time while you're out on the court. And then the other one that we spent some time on a whole chapter on is emotion. You know, sports is emotion. Uh, basketball is emotion. You go through so many highs and lows and, and emotions during a game. And if you can control those emotions and not let them affect your decision-making, but there's plenty of studies and obviously plenty of anecdotal research uh, or observation of emotions taking over and destroying decision-making capabilities. And so I think that's an area, too, that's not studied as much, not understood as much about when players are in tight games and the crowd is yelling and everybody's yelling at them. It's a lot different than making decisions at a, at a practice on a Tuesday afternoon. Mm. Fascinating. Well, I mean, I don't think we've covered enough here from soccer to chess to emotions to <laughs> we I, I'm lamenting that we really didn't get to get to bake in um, uh, dog training into all of this because <laughs> because as 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 you talk through this, I'm kind of struck and I'm wondering if there are like mammalian structures that kind of overlap here because I'm I'm struck by how a lot of the latest research in dog training maps all of the kind of guiding principles from the ability to generalize and how important that is take taking right. something and putting it in a different environment um, having it be more dynamic or another key one that really fascinates me is this idea of um letting letting dogs make their own mistakes and when they configure something out on their own in training, it's much stickier and much more powerful. And the kind of connection to that in sports where it's like, you make your own mistakes and you get that direct feedback loop. And then you understand how to read that defense because you start to get your own mental Rolodex and inventory versus 
do this drill for this corner pass over and over again. And if you don't get it right, you get yelled at. And if you get it right, no one runs. Um, and kind of the, the history, right? The historic, and it's like the same thing. It's like if, if you train the dog that way, the dog maybe learns to avoid being punished or whatever it may be. Um, anyway, I, I think we've, I think we've covered good ground here for today. Um, I appreciate you coming on and taking the time and, and going through all this with us. Uh, anything you'd like to plug? Where can people find more of your work? Get a hold of either of these books, uh, which I, I highly recommend. Or if you know, if a lot of people based on just listening to this will want more. So um, where can they find that? Oh, I appreciate that. Thanks, Ben. I um, both books are on all the usual places: um, Amazon, Apple, Barnes and Noble, um, Google, etc. So. Um, Typically, if you search for Playmaker uh, and Peterson, you'll find them. Uh, it's e- Peterson's easier to spell than Zykowski. Um, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, and then also if uh, uh, you can order them from your local bookstore, if you prefer to support your local bookstore, um, some of them still stock either one of them, um, but they certainly can order them if you'd like to order them from your local bookstore. But um, they're out there. Um, our website is 80percentmental.com. That's eight zero, and then the words percentmental.com, and you'll see links to them there. And I know you'll probably put them in the show notes too. But yeah, I mean, our whole goal for Len and I, um, we don't really do. Len does consulting. If you would you're interested in talking to Len, but he's uh, like I said, retired in Florida, but he does help out a few teams here and there. Uh, he's been working a lot with the Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, in fact. Um, one of his former students way back when at Boston University was Mike Sullivan, the head coach of the, the Penguins, and he wrote the forward for the first book. So he's been helping out with the Penguins. Um, but other than that, you know, we just wanted to start the conversation with parents and coaches and fans about that kind of learning that cognitive side of playing sports, understanding sports, watching sports, um, and uh, being able to talk about it a little more. So thanks for the time. If you enjoyed this conversation, it really helps us out to leave a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want to directly support this podcast, head over to patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We have additional content, proprietary stats that go back historically, uh, and a ton more. Patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Thanks as always for listening. Really hope you enjoyed this one. And wherever you are, of course, that you are having a great day.